0: During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Grace Kids, you are dismissed pre-K through second grade. Uh, Go ahead and walk back to uh, that room with your parents. Before we dive in, if you happen to slip in uh, just a little bit late, I want to remind you we have our family night meeting this evening. We're going to come into this room at 5 o'clock and we get to talk about all that's going on in the life of the church. Everyone's invited to come to these. If you're new, it might be a good opportunity just to kind of see what's going on. But if you are a member, we would ask that you would make this a priority. If you can, we'll have child care, as David said in the beginning of the service. Now we get to dive into the book of Exodus. If you were here last week, you know that I'm wanting to carve out weeks during the year where I preach a whole sermon on one book of the Bible. And initially this was supposed to be a five-week series for COVID-ish reasons. It's a two-week series. But my hope is that I get to be the pastor of this church for a very long time and that I get to do sermons like this on most, if not all, the books of the Bible before I'm done here. And so I think it's important that the Bible is a story, one story from Genesis to Revelation about Jesus Christ. And it's really important that we understand at a high altitude what these books are doing, what the main purpose of Genesis and Exodus and other books, what their main purpose is in the larger story. We as Christians should be able to say in just a few sentences what the purpose of each book of the Bible is. And so that's my hope. Uh, I hope that we can do this in a way that that it's clear um, and faithful to the text. So you could make an argument that that Genesis, if if this is a book, is more like the prologue. You get to Exodus and you're at chapter one. Chapter one of the story. And in chapter one, you see God calling and delivering his people. In, In one of the most dramatic ways that we see anywhere in the Bible, God is actively calling, pursuing, and delivering his people. And I started to think about this view of God compared to most of the people outside of the church that I interact with. And so when I interact with non-Christians, I actually don't, for whatever reason in my life, I don't interact with a lot of non-Christians who are true atheists. There there are a few out there, but most of them do believe in some higher being or some form of a God. and, And whatever that is, he, she, or it, they that they believe in a God that, that maybe can't hear our cries and can't hear our requests. Or maybe if they do, they're either limited in some way. To, they don't have the power to, uh, to intervene or maybe don't have the desire to intervene. Doesn't want to. But there's, there's some lacking in these other views of God that causes God to not hear our prayers and not answer them. But that's not the God that we see in the book of Exodus we see a god who is hearing his people and pursuing his people and delivering his people when i was a student at reformed theological seminary i had a family member who's not a christian who asked saw that i went to rts and asked what does this word reformed mean and so i went to one of my professors at the time dr fatado and i said how would you answer that question what does reformed mean to somebody who's not even a christian and he said, you tell that family member that being reformed means that you believe in a God who cares about and is invo- actively involved in every single aspect of your life. I thought that was a really good definition of the Christian faith. And that's absolutely what we see here in the book of Exodus. About I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe I was fishing with an Italian friend who was not a believer and an American friend who was. And I was a fairly new Christian and, and we hadn't caught anything. It was really boring. And so he, the Italian friend kind of trying to jab at us said, I guess God's not here today. And I didn't really know what to say. I was like, I guess not. I don't know. And my, my older, wiser Christian friend said, no, no, God's always here. God's always listening. And if he wanted you to catch the biggest fish of the day right now, you would. And at that, m- that very moment, his pole went down. He caught a massive fish and professed faith in Jesus Christ later that week. <laughs> That's the God we serve. And that is, that is just a small glimpse of what we actually see God doing in the book of Exodus. And so I want to look at Exodus and see God as the main character who is initiating, who is guiding all these dramatic events in, in the Bible. And so I want to walk through the book of Exodus and I want to see God doing four things. I want to see God drawing his people God delivering his people, God distinguishing his people, and then finally God dwelling with his people. And if, that, if, if I can't get any more Baptisty than that, I got four D's right there. But that, that's what you see God doing. And I, and while that is my own outline, I am drawing very specifically in points from a sermon Mark Dever preached in 2002 on the book of Exodus. So I want to give him that credit here too. So first, we start in Exodus and we see God drawing his people Moses, uh, God starts by drawing Moses. You have uh, chapter one, and in chapter one, it spans centuries. Chapter two, chapters one and two is where he's calling Moses. Chapter two spans about 80 years, and then chapters three through 40 are just over a year. And so we said last week that when we, we've got to pay attention to time. When time slows down in scripture, God's wanting to focus on us on something very specific. So just like in Genesis, there are times where things slow way down. And so we pay attention. Remember where Genesis left off. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, who had been sold into slavery, rose to be the second most powerful person in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. God had told him there would be a famine. And so... Joseph had wisely led to prepare not only Egypt for the famine, but also be able to support Joseph's brothers when they come looking for help. And so at the end of chapter 50, Joseph dies. And then you turn the page over to Exodus chapter 1, and centuries have passed. Centuries have gone, gone by. The Pharaoh now doesn't even really, know, doesn't know of Joseph and you can see that the Israelites, they've multiplied greatly. So, so they're living out this creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply. But Pharaoh sees this as a threat. He sees this, this religious and ethnic minority growing and growing and growing in number and influence. And he sees it as a problem. You know, Mark Dever says, nationalism and xenophobia often lead to ugly things. As populations feel threatened or even overwhelmed... By a surging minority, so what we have is a surging minority. Egypt sees it as a problem, so the first thing they do is they turn the surging minority into a free labor source. They turn them into slaves. They're doing what Egypt wants, but it doesn't. It's not just being slaves. I mean, the persecution that you see in the book of Exodus is Afghanistan-like at this point. I mean, the pharaoh is so concerned about the, pr- the problem of these growing Israelites, he decrees that all. Uh, young boys, when they are born or maybe soon after, be killed. Just kill all the Israelite boys. This is, we've got to do something to curb this explosive growth, growth of Israelites in our, in our midst. And so this is the context that Moses was born in. So many of the Hebrew midwives, they disobeyed Pharaoh. They would not kill these babies. Moses was born. His mom was able to hide him for about three months. But then about three months, she can't hide him anymore. She she has to come up with a plan to keep him safe. So she she builds this little basket. And contrary to urban myth, she does not float him down the river. I mean, can you think of a more unsafe thing to do with a baby, a three-month-old, than float them down a river? It would be safer, I think, to find a hungry lion walking through to Pharaoh's palace and just put him on the back. I mean, she didn't float him down the river. She knew where it was that Pharaoh's household bathed, and specifically Pharaoh's daughter. And so she made this basket, put Moses in it, and put him by the bank of the river so that he would be found by someone hopefully sympathetic in Pharaoh's household. That's exactly what happened. His daughter comes in, and his daughter takes Moses into his household. And we don't know a lot about the next 80 years of Moses' life. Uh, There are, you know, you have places like the the animated movie, Prince of Egypt, who very imaginatively fill us in on Moses' relationship with Pharaoh's household. But those are all guesses. We don't know anything about Moses' growing up years, his relationship with Pharaoh and everybody else in that house. The next thing that we see is is that Moses is a murderer. That's the next thing we see. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave and he kills him. And after he does that, he knows he can't stay, so he flees. He flees Egypt, and he goes to, uh, goes to a land where there are other descendants of Abraham, the Midianites. And Moses marries. He settles down, and he's probably thinking, this is, I'm just going to enjoy the rest of my quiet life, far away from the mess going on over in Egypt. And that's when God draws him. That's when God intervenes. And he does this, as you may remember, at the burning bush. So Mo- Moses, Moses is walking. Moses isn't in search of God. He isn't on some trek to, to find himself. He's just walking and it's God who intervenes into his life. He sees this bush that's burning, but it's not, it's not consumed. And it's there that God speaks very directly to Moses and tells him some things. He tells him a little bit about who God is. He tells him his name. God says, you tell them, I am. It's who I am. And I'm sending you to go to Pharaoh and to tell them, I've heard I hear the cries of my people over there and I'm commanding you to let them go. So that is the beginning of God drawing his people. This isn't Moses' altruistic spirit. This isn't Moses' overt spirituality or desire to see things done right. Moses has fled and God is coming into Moses' life and sending him back to answer the cries of his people. That's God drawing his people. Then we see God delivering his people. So Moses responds to the call in the first two chapters, literally the first four chapters, and then verses five through eighteen is where we see God delivering his people. So Moses goes, goes into Egypt. It makes it clear what he's there for. He is accompanied by signs and wonders. And in chapter 4, verse 31, we see that the Israelites believe. That they believe Moses is who he says he is. And You can see this and think, well, that's no big deal, of course. Anybody coming in saying, let my people go. All the Israelites are just going to fall in line and say, we're we're with him. But that's not the case because if Moses can't deliver on his promises, what's going to happen to Moses and all those people who followed him? They're dead. But they believe, not in Moses, but in God who Moses is serving, and so they're in. And things immediately get really bad for all the Israelites. Pharaoh decides, I'm going to double your workload. And I'm going to give you less material to accomplish it. And so then you have this famous back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh. This one, the prince of Egypt, probably gets a little bit better. And you have all these plagues. This is chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And it's very important to see that each of these plagues, Moses is saying something very clearly against the Egyptian gods, against one of the pantheon of gods they have here. And these plagues is an attack on their deity and the people, the gods that they claim to serve. So each plague, you you have this God of this. Oh, where is he now? Or this God, where is he now? Or this God, where is he now? And they go through plague after plague after plague. Basically totally destroying any confidence they would have in these gods that they serve. And then finally you get to the last plague. And in the last plague, God says, I am going to strike down the firstborn in every household unless the blood of a lamb is over the door. And this is, of course, where we get the the Hebrew Passover festival. I'm going to begin reading in Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in that night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And so this, of course, at this moment, is when the actual Exodus starts. But before we follow the story into the Exodus, we have to look at this character, Pharaoh, for just a minute because we talked a lot about God's sovereignty in, in Genesis. We're seeing God's sovereignty here in Exodus, but we, we can't just say, oh, God's sovereign when something goes well and somebody turns out really great like Moses and not see God's sovereignty in someone like Pharaoh. God is no less sovereign in Pharaoh's life than he is Moses's. One pastor said, Pharaoh and Moses are opposites in the story. Moses has nothing but gains everything. Pharaoh has everything but loses it, loses it all. And God is sovereign over both. So God put Pharaoh in power. That's clear, just like he did Moses. This is chapter 9, verse 15, 16. For by now... I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be claimed in all the earth. So it's clear God is the one who put Pharaoh in power, but he's not just sovereign over Pharaoh's position. He's sovereign over his heart as well. The text says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is a hard thing. This is probably one of the hardest parts of Exodus. I think it's harder really for the Christian than even the the extravagant miracles, this idea that God would harden his heart. And here's here's just one of many clear places that God says this in Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And this isn't one obscure verse. There are five places in Exodus where Moses records that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There are four places where Moses records that Pharaoh's heart became hardened. And there are two places that say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So as Christians, we have to wrestle with this. And I, I, probably we could take a whole, a whole sermon to just look at this. But the heart of the question is, does that make God unfair? Does that make God unjust in any way? And I'm going to let the Apostle Paul answer that question. Romans nine fourteen. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and he's obviously interacting with our text, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on who has mercy, and whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills. So Pharaoh's heart has been hardened, but that does in no way mean that God is unjust. When we get to the end of the story, when we get to the better promised land, we, there's nobody who is going to say God was anything other than fair and just. So, you have this little moment where Pharaoh's heart is breaking. Maybe he's tired, he's beat down, I don't know what it is, but he relents. And he says, fine, go, leave, take everyone. And you have 600,000 men plus women and children who begin this trek from the city of Ramses to the Red Sea. And so they get to the edge of the Red Sea. And I'm going I'm to read from here. I couldn't tell the story better than I can read it. But this is where we see God do this great miracle because Pharaoh's heart is again hardened. And he, out of revenge now for what has happened in Egypt, he, is, he and his whole army are pursuing the Israelites to try and kill them. And so we pick up in chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Does this God sound like a God who does not hear? Does this God sound like a God who doesn't care? Does this God sound like a God who isn't able to do something for his people? No. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of the Bible who cares, hears, and acts. And then through chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18, you see Israel on their way, wandering their way toward Mount Sinai. And on their way, people are grumbling. They've just seen this great thing, but they're still grumbling. Yet God provides daily water and bread in the form of manna and quail. It even provides when they're attacked that they would, get, they would have victory. God continues this deliverance all the way to Mount Sinai, which is when we see him beginning to distinguish his people. God does not treat all people the same. So we see God distinguishing up, up until this point, He's been distinguishing between the Israelites and the Egyptians. He, you know, when when there were the plagues, certain plagues like the flies uh, went to the Egyptians, not the Israelites. When the hail came, it went to the Egyptians, but it didn't hail on the Israelites. There were certain ways that God would distinguish even between the different animals of the Egyptians and. Uh, And the Israelites. And I mean, there there are lots of different ways we can see that God is distinguishing his people from the Egyptian people. Here's one example in chapter 11, verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So what is God saying here? Up until Sinai, in the loudest possible way, these are my people. These are my people, and I hear them, and I will deliver them. But then, as you get past the actual deliverance, you see that God's not only distinguishing his people from the Egyptians. He's distinguishing his people from all other peoples, and he does this through the law. And so the law is going to come at Mount Sinai and we have to see, it's really important to see, God does not give them the law and then see how they do and then maybe save them. God saves them and then gives them the law. That's really important because the law is not coming to save us. The law is coming to distinguish us as God's people. Here, here's what God says. So this is chapters 19 through 31, but here's what God says in chapter 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So it's no longer this Israel Egypt thing among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is obviously where we get the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And we get lots of other statutes and ordinances in chapters 21, 22, and 23. Because God wants his people to be distinct. So how is it that the law makes God's people distinct? Well, the law causes us to live differently. They are to, these people of God are to reflect the character of God. These, the worship of these people is going to look different. They're not going to worship idols. They're going to worship the real God. They're going to treat each other in a different way. They're going to treat their servants in a different way. They're going to ensure that justice is done. They're going to ensure that responsibility is taken, that people and property are respected, that compassion is shown and that love reigns. God, God wants his people to to be distinguished in a way where we reflect who he is in a way that the rest of the world doesn't and can't do. They even are commanded to help people who hate them. I mean, this isn't anything any of the rest of the ancient world was practicing. Exodus 23, 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. God wants his people to live and look like God. That's why he's distinguishing them. And then you see in chapter four, uh, this formal, chapter 24, this formal sealing or confirming of the covenant. uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights during which he receives more instructions. This is is chapters 25 through 31. He's receiving instructions about the tabernacle, about offerings, the table, the lampstand, the ark, and various uh, aspects of worship. He's receiving all these commands, these ways that the Israelite people are to be distinct so that they reflect the character of God more. That's what Moses is doing. Chapter 31, 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. So now we're not just talking about daily life. We're talking about worship. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Or in the the words of the old NIV, who make you holy. To be holy means to be set apart. This is why he gives his people the law, to set them apart, to distinguish them. But having the law isn't enough. You actually have to obey it. You have to do it. The people need to embrace the law. And in chapter 32, as Moses is receiving all these instructions, what's going down at the bottom of the mountain? Probably these same grumblers, I would imagine, maybe not. They're they're kind of nervous because they haven't seen Moses in, in 40 days and 40 nights. And so they began to craft this golden calf to be able to worship. They, they needed something to worship. They were scared they knew what to do. So they made something in their image. And so Moses is up on the top of Sinai receiving these instructions. And God says, here's what's going on down there. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to destroy them all. And that's what God says to Moses. And I'm going to start over with you. I mean, can you imagine? All of us are a part of some family in some way. What if the whole rest of your family did something really stupid? I mean, legitimately, we all agree, they really messed up here. And God came in, or anybody else said, you know what, we're going to kill them all, I'm going to start over through you. And then, But with Moses, it's even bigger, because it's not just, you know, his family, this is all the families, their friends, families, and everybody, and he pleads with the Lord, please do not do this. But it's really important to see the basis upon which he pleads to God. He doesn't plead on the righteousness or the merit of the Israelite people, or even Moses' merits, he says, for your glory, would you do this? Because you know what's going to happen back in Egypt. If you kill us all, they're all going to say, see, God of Israel, he's tricky. He's really not for you. He, he wants evil for you. And we can see it because of what happened in the Israelites. And then Moses begins to plead the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it can almost feel like, like it's Moses who's instructing God here, rebuking God. But that's not what happened. what's happening. What's happening for our benefit, we're seeing that Moses really gets it. Moses really understands the purpose of God and how he works for his glory and his fame. And he does what he says he will do regardless of our faithfulness. While we're unfaithful, he's faithful. That's what we're seeing right here. And so God says, okay, he relents. Moses runs down the mountain. He actually sees what's going on. He's aghast. He's appalled. And so he has these tablets where he'd written all these instructions on. He throws them down. They break to pieces. 3,000 people are executed and that golden calf is destroyed. And so then Moses goes back, back up to the mountain to plead again with God. Do not destroy them. Moses even goes so far as to say, may my name be blotted out of the book of life if you will spare them. I mean, there's a whole book on leadership there. He would give his own life for the life of these people who do not deserve what they are getting. And then God says in return to Moses in chapter 32, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless in the day when I visit I will visit their sin upon them. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So God then sent a plague, more people died, but grace was given to the people of God in that day. They were delivered, they were distinguished. And in chapter 34, this covenant that they made is renewed after all this fiasco. And in chapters 35 to 40, they're building the tabernacle that had, you know, that Moses had received these instructions in chapters twenty-five through thirty-one. And I think it's really interesting to read these these latter chapters because it really seems like they learned their lesson from the golden calf because they are they are to the T following these instructions. They are not going to turn to the left or the right. They they at least for now have learned their lesson. And then here with this tabernacle we get to see the last and greatest blessing of God. God dwells with his people. So this is the most important part. You know, we don't follow God because of things he can do us, because of victories he can give us, because of wealth he can give us or health or anything else. There's no gift. We get the giver. God is the great prize and he, he, he dwells with his people. And Moses sees the blessing of God being with them, with his presence dwelling with them. Chapter 33, 15. And he said to him, if, this is Moses, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. So what he, he doesn't care about the promised land even. What he wants is God's presence. If you're going to send us to the promised land without your presence, I don't want it. Presence, not presence, sorry. For how shall it be known that I have favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? But the question that you still need is how is it then that a holy God dwells with the sinful people? Because every place in the Bible where God's holiness and sinful man come together, it goes disastrously for sin, sin, sinful people. And so this is what the tabernacle is beginning to do. So we, we, it's, it's all a part of the, the temple system. So the temple system is the place that God meets with man. So that happened in the Garden of Eden, tabernacle, temple. Jesus, Holy Spirit, will get there. But right here in the tabernacle, God's saying, this is how I am going to dwell with you. And it isn't like this is God's little home. You know, this is where we put God, over, over here in the tabernacle. This is the place that the omnipresent God has sovereignly chosen, that he will meet with us. And it's gonna happen in a safe way. We will not be killed. So in the center of the, of the camp is the tabernacle, and the center of the tabernacle is God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And there are all kinds of rules uh, that dictate who can approach that spot, uh, when and how they can approach that spot. And then even people who can't go in there, if you, if you commit certain sins or become inc- unclean in certain ways, you, you, not only can you not go to the tabernacle, you're outside of the whole camp. And so what we're seeing in the way that God is interacting with us is that He is holy and we are sinful. This is being reinforced over and over again. But for right now, God has said, even so, I'm going to provide a way where where we can meet together. And this is where Exodus ends. And if you were here last week, you remember that I said that Genesis was a story about Jesus. Jesus isn't an afterthought. After everything went bad, God thought of Jesus. And Jesus isn't something that, that we're inappropriately reading into the text. This is, Genesis to Revelation is a story about Jesus and Exodus is no exception. So think about Luke 24, when Jesus had resurrected, he's walking on the road to Damascus with two of the disciples who didn't get it and he's explaining everything to them. And Jesus says, and beginning with Moses, this is where we are, and then all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's looking back at our passage and saying, Here was me. Here's me. Here's me. This is pointing to me. This is me. And he's showing us Jesus in the Old Testament. And we're able to see that God's salvific purposes in the book of Exodus are just a pretaste of God's plan for all of his people. Everybody who would come. ...to God is drawn by him, delivered by him, distinguished by him, and he will dwell with us. And so Christ is our true mediator who can actually give his life for us. Christ is the better high priest who leads people not to false worship, but to true worship. Christ is the actual only covenant keeper that has ever lived. Our baptism in Christ is better than the Red Sea... Jesus is our Passover lamb and Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham who would bless all nations and fully deliver us in the better promised land from all our woes and our sin. And so Exodus, I want us to all see Exodus as a microcosm of how God deals with his people, all of us. We are called out of our sin. We are, we are spared the wrath of God by Jesus, who is the true Passover lamb. Through his blood, we are saved. And then we walk through the waters of baptism, and we're given a new ethical system that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. But now something's different. We desire this law. God dwells in us, not through a tabernacle, but through his Holy Spirit inside of us. And we wander in this life, waiting for this better promised land where we have the fullness of his presence. And as we wander, Jesus, the better Moses, is interceding for us at every single moment because he has perfectly kept the law. Moses couldn't trade spots with us. He couldn't give his life for us because he's a murderer. He's a sinner like the rest of us, but Jesus can and did on the cross. So the story of Exodus, it's our story. It's all of our story if we follow Jesus Christ. So believer here today, go back and read Exodus. Read it with these, these, this lens and see this as your story. And if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, go back and read Exodus and see the wonderful story that could be yours if you would embrace Jesus Christ. This is not a story about Moses the great public servant. As you might see in some movies, this is a story about God and his pursuit and deliverance and blessing of his great treasured possession, the church. That's Exodus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when you created this story, when you... Decided in eternity past that there would be a book of Exodus. And this book would not just be a one-time story for Israel, but be a pattern of how you would deal with all the people you love. God, I pray that we would see this. That we would desire at a very deep level to be distinguished. That we would look and live more like you, that we would be more conformed in the image of your son, and that we would reflect something distinctly different to the world around us. And we pray that that would draw people in, that we would see your kingdom not just strengthened but expanded through this church and many others for which we are very thankful in this city. God, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.